Today um, is our final Sunday unpacking uh, the plans for the bark, what we're calling the bark of St. Bartholomew. So I've preached now for four Sundays in a row on vision at St. Bartholomew's using a bark, B-A-R-Q-U-E, which is a, a ship with three masts as our orienting image. So as we said on St. B's Sunday, the church's deepest nature is expressed in her threefold responsibility. The church's deepest nature, what she is, is expressed in her threefold responsibility. Three things that God is calling us to do, three sails on our ship. So with each sail supported by the mast of Christian formation and kept safe inside the hull of our community, we've looked at the first two sails, evangelism and then service to the poor, and then this week we finally arrive at our third sail, which is worship. It's worship. And like every week that we've done one of these flyovers, uh, like a 30,000 foot uh, survey of our subject, uh, there's a Greek word that goes along with the sail, and this week it's a slightly more familiar Greek word, and the word is letargia, letargia. It's a, a literal, it, it's like two words jammed together, the words litos, uh, which means, it means uh, people, and ergos, or ergon, means work. Lit, letargia, or liturgy, literally means the work of the people. And it can mean actually more than one thing. So liturgy can mean uh, sort of a, a life of prayer, prayer diffused, suffused throughout our lives uh, every morning, uh, every day, morning and evening. But for Anglicans like you and me, and for the purposes of this sermon, let's say that worship is the Eucharist. It's what we're doing here today. It's the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, the divine liturgy, the, the mass, whatever you call it. Liturgy is, uh, it's what the prayer book calls our central act of worship. So I want to jump right in. Uh, this is the last week of long-ish sermons, I promise. But I'm going to jump in and ask three questions about worship. First, how is worship a waste? Second, how is worship worthwhile? And then Finally, how does worship work? How is worship a waste? How is it worthwhile? And finally, how does worship work? So first of all, why is, what, what do I mean? Why am I calling worship a waste? It's a weird way uh, to start a sermon. I mean, if it's true, then why, why are you here? Why don't you just click off at home and go do something else? Well, Sarah Dahl, D-A-H-L, uh, is, uh, she lives in San Francisco and she's one of two women uh, behind Aslan's Library. So it's a website that's dedicated to curating the best in children's literature. And she's also a writer. I read something that she wrote for Comment Magazine a few months ago. And the, the piece that she wrote for Comment was about a creed that she, that, that she says her fellow San Franciscans live by. So this creed is... And it may sound familiar to you, even in Nashville. The creed is, you should live better. You should live better. So this is what she says. You can't hear long enough. That you can't live here in San Francisco long, 
long without breathing it in the air. So much of our cultural, civic, business, and social life in the city is organized around optimizing everything, all the time. A habit of mind that over time forms people in ways that make traditional church going increasingly hard to understand. You should live better starts out innocuously enough. Drink better coffee. Eat better food, paleo, vegan, locally sourced, humanely grown, ad infinitum. Optimize your exercise and mindfulness routines. Craft a healthy work-life balance. Don't waste any time on chores that technology can solve, but do occasionally detox from devices. Get your systems all in place. Establish your flow. Live better is a creed that teaches us to look at life as a potential, potentially perfectible experience and then to drop anything or any person that is unproductive, ineffective, or simply a waste of time. But Sarah Dahl is a Christian. And so she goes on to say, we choose, Christians choose, to do something countercultural. We say no to Sunday morning birthday parties and athletic games. We pick our children up early from Saturday night sleepovers. We drink our own coffee at home and have yet to hit any of the really great brunch spots. Instead, we go to a lot of trouble to engage in an activity that is patently unproductive. It's often uncomfortable in its demands of us, sometimes boring and occasionally anxiety-producing. We go to church. According to the Live Better Creed, Worship doesn't compute. It's not productive. It's, it's not efficient. It's not calculated to optimize our lives in any kind of way. So it just gets pushed to the end of the queue. Anytime something better comes along in, on our schedules, whether it's a, a fishing trip or the kid's soccer game, maybe it's just needing to sleep in on a Sunday after a long week or just wanting to stay home out of the weather. Um, some of you actually may know Tom Rainier. Tom Rainier used to be a president of Lifeway here in Nashville. And he wrote an article not long ago that said 20 years ago, um, a church member was considered active, an active church member, if he or she went to church three times a week. And then Rainier says today, I think it was in 2019, today a church member is considered active in the church if he or she attends three times a month. And actually, if you look at the research, it was, it was down to two even before the pandemic started. So worship is a waste of time. It's a waste of time in a live better world. So why do it? That's point number two. Worship is a waste of time, but why and how is worship worthwhile? And my answer to that comes from a particular Wednesday night in, I think it was in 2005, at the parish I was working at in Washington, D.C. It was called the Church of the Ascension and St. Agnes. I did field ed there when I was a seminarian studying at Virginia Seminary. 
And one of my jobs as the seminarian was to assist at Mass. I would go in uh, on Wednesday nights and I would serve with the priest, uh, whoever came to the Eucharist that night. And uh, we were right downtown, right in the middle of the city. So there were all these people that had been to work all day. They were leaving, going to the suburbs or wherever they went. And we would open the doors and we would say the Mass together. And usually only three or four people would come, maybe five. But this particular night, um, only two people showed up. Me and the priest, Father Connor, who's one of my mentors. And so we went into the sacristy, we vested, we put on kind of our simple, uh, elegant but simple vestments that we usually use for the midday mass, uh, the midweek mass. And uh, then we waited. Waited five minutes, ten minutes. Nobody came. And so Father Connor said, Sammy, let's go change. So we trundled off back to the, the sacristy, um, but we didn't put on our street clothes, which is what I thought he was talking about. In fact, we took off our simple but elegant daily Eucharist vestments, and we took out the very best, fanciest, most flowery, had lace, more lace, more grace, baby. So we had all, all of this stuff that we put on, um, and we never used incense in, in the middle of the week, but this night we did, and we put tons of it on. We went out and we just threw clouds of smoke all over northwest D.C., and we used the, the high altar rather than the little side altar uh, in the side chapel. We rang all the bells. We did all of the, uh, the choreography, and then in his sermon, which was preached only to me, of course. I mean, you never give up on a captive audience. So he preached like 15 minutes just at me. Father Connor said, I know that this makes absolutely no sense to the world that's going by Mass Ave, Massachusetts Avenue, right outside our doors. I know it makes no sense. But worship is foolish extravagance. It's foolish extravagance. It is putting on your best finery and going through all of the motions, doing the best job that you possibly can at the work of the people. It's more beauty than you think you can muster, and it is for one reason only, because God deserves it. Because God deserves it. Worship is worthwhile because it is for God. In fact, the word worship is a contraction of the words worth-ship. So it's, you give worship to whatever is worthy. God is the ultimate worthy being. So um, in a book called For All God's Worth, N.T. Wright says that worship is humble and glad Worship forgets itself in remembering God. Worship celebrates the truth as God's own, not, as God's truth, not its own. True worship isn't forced. It isn't half-hearted. It doesn't keep looking at its watch. Doesn't worry what the person in the next pew is doing. True worship is open to God, adoring God, waiting for God, trusting God, even in the dark. Worship is nothing more, and this is a great line, Worship is nothing more nor less than love on its knees before the beloved. Worship is for God. So, 
you don't like the song that the choir sings today? Well, it's not for you. Incense a little thick? Well, the rector likes it. But it's also, it's, for, it's foolish extravagance. It is for God, not for us. God deserves foolish extravagance. And what Brock read this morning from Isaiah 42, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. Not to each other. Sing to God His praise from the end of the earth. Worship is our highest privilege and it is our most insistent duty. Not because of what we get out of it, but because of what God gets out of it. Marva Dawn, if you don't believe me, Marva Dawn, uh, at the beginning of her book called A Royal Waste of Time, she says, to worship the Lord is in the world's eyes a waste. It's a waste of time. By engaging in it, we don't accomplish anything useful in our society's terms. Worship ought not be construed in a utilitarian way. Its purpose is not to gain numbers, nor for our churches to be seen as successful. The entire reason for our worship is God deserves it. That's why worship, even though it's a waste of time, it's worthwhile because God deserves it. Question number three. Why does worship work? Worship is uh, this kind of strange alchemy that if you do it uh, over time, you will walk away changed. My friend Nate used to say that the sacraments work like radiation. You can't see them, but they go through all to your bones and the sacraments work without you even knowing them, and you get changed. Uh, Dorothy Day, who was uh, the writer and activist who founded the Catholic Worker Movement, said that the liturgy is, it, it works as a kind of revolution of the heart. A revolution, an upheaval in the heart. It's the work of the people, but it also works in us, and it works on us. How does that work? Well... Uh, Dom Gregory Dix uh, wrote this big book. He was a British monk and, and a, a priest at Nashtam Abbey, which was an Anglican Benedictine uh, community there in England. <clears throat> and he was a liturgical scholar in the middle of the 20th century, very influential in the reform of the Anglican liturgy. One of the reasons that, we, that our prayer book uh, from 1979 is the way that it is is because of work of, uh, of uh, Dom Gregory and some of the others. Um, but in, this is his most important book called The Shape of the Liturgy. And this is how he says it. He says, Jesus had told his friends to do this henceforward with the new meaning for the remembrance of me. So he's talking about the Eucharist. Do this in remembrance of me. Was ever a command so obeyed? For century after century, spreading slowly to every continent and country and among every race on earth, this action has been done in every conceivable human circumstance for every conceivable human need. From the pinnacles of earthly greatness to the refuge of fugitives in the caves and dens of the earth, for kings at their crowning and for criminals going to the scaffold. For armies in triumph, or for a bride and bridegroom in a little country church. For the proclamation of a dogma, 
or for a good crop of wheat, for the wisdom of parliament, or for a sick old woman afraid to die, for the famine of whole provinces, or in thankfulness because my father did not die of pneumonia, because the Turk was at the gates of Vienna, and this is my favorite line, for the repentance of Margaret, for a son of a barren woman, for captain so-and-so, while the lions roared in the nearby amphitheater, on the beach at Dunkirk, one could fill pages with the reasons why men have done this and not tell a hundredth of them. And best of all, best of all, week by week and month by month, on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully, unfailingly, across all the parishes of Christendom, the pastors have done this just to make the plebs sancta day, the holy common people of God. This act forges us into what we are, the people of God. I think I mentioned before that uh, the SSJE, the Society of St. John the Evangelist, is a, um, it's a monastery in, in Cambridge, in Massachusetts, across the, the Charles from Boston. And um, I used to go there sometimes to make retreats, and they would sometimes use different words at the invitation. So when the priest or the, the, the monk would hold the, the, the body and the blood up, uh, he would say, behold what you are. Now become what you receive. So it was a, it, it's, it's a play on something that St. Augustine said. Behold, look up here. This is, but see what you are. And now take it and become what is placed on your tongue. Become the body of Christ. Dom Gregory Dick says it happens like this. There are four things that happen in the Eucharist to the elements, the bread and the wine. The priest takes them, blesses them, breaks them, and gives them. Takes them, blesses them, breaks them, and gives them. And Henry Nouwen in The Life of the Beloved says that these four things actually happen to us, to you and me. These words summarize our lives because Christians are called to become bread for the world. Bread that's taken, blessed, broken, and given. So in worship, God takes us, receives us as His family, makes us part of His family. We are grafted into the vine. And then God blesses us. It's from a word, the word benedicite, which means to speak a good word over. So the God's blessing is spoken over us. We're assured of God's favor. And then with all of our brokenness, all of our pain, all the ways we've been sinned against, all of our loss, all of our grief, God says, broken, I send you, I give you to the world as bread. Behold what you are. Become what you receive. Worship is a waste but it is worthwhile, and it does its work on us. So that's our ship. That is the bark of St. Bartholomew's, the sails of evangelism, serving the poor, worship, a ship with uh, Christian formation for the masts, and then inside a hull formed by the thick bonds of community. So let me close. I want to close by telling you about something I saw once. 
uh, in Israel, where we were traveling, near Capernaum, there's a little village, and it's said to be the village where uh, Mary Magdalene lived. And in that little village, there's a church. It's a pretty new church. And the main, you can actually find, go home today and find videos of this on YouTube and look at the church itself. The main chapel in the church, there's, I think there are four, but the main one is called the Boat Chapel. So, I mean, if, I've been thinking about boats for a month. So I saw this, I remembered this, and I thought, ah, the Boat Chapel. And the altar in the chapel is like nothing that you've ever seen. It's not like ours, which is kind of like this block of, of, uh, of white polished marble. Uh, it's not a table. In fact, the, the altar itself in this little church is shaped like a ship. It's shaped like a boat. And then behind it, if you look through the windows, you're worshiping here, you look past the altar shaped like a ship through the windows, you, are right on, you look right out onto the Sea of Galilee where the, where the disciples fished, where Jesus uh, lived, where he walked on the water. And over the, the altar uh, around the the church are three words, Duke in Altum, Duke in Altum. In fact, that's the name of the little church, it's the Duke in Altum Church. So I started these sermons a month ago, quoting a pope. I want to close with another one, because this one, this time it's, it's Karl Wojtyla, who became uh, Pope St. John Paul II, and in the year 2000, he wrote a letter to all of his churches, to the church universal, to us. He wrote a letter, and it's at the turn of the third millennium. He's facing uh, the challenge of a post-Christian West, uh, a secularizing world, and a church that's, quite frankly, beat up. It's been beat up. And in his letter, he reached for those three words, Duke in Altum. Because Jesus had said those words, if he'd spoken Latin, which he would have if he knew what was good for him, but if he, he was speaking Latin, he would have said those words to Simon. Because, just think about Simon in his little boat, and Jesus comes up and he sees him out after having worked, and Jesus says to him, Duke in Altum. And what it means is, put out into the deep put out into the deep. John Paul called the church to leave the shallow, brackish waters of institutional maintenance in order to make a great catch, not of fish, but a catch of souls. We have our bark, we have each other. We pray God to fill our sails with the wind of His Spirit. Wind, ruach means wind, to to fill us with the, the wind of His Spirit. And in a secularizing Western world, in a time of pandemic, we put out into the deep. To the deep where we plumb the mystery of God, where we go deeper into Jesus, which drives us deeper in the world. Duke and Altum. Duke and Altum. That's your invitation. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.